Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Don't look now, but Russia is modernizing its military infrastructure and expanding its force structure in the Baltic enclave of Kaliningrad, which borders NATO members Poland and Lithuania. And as the political crisis in Belarus drags into its eighth month, the Kremlin is clearly trying to leverage Alexander Lukashenko's isolation and vulnerability in order to achieve Moscow's longtime goal of expanding Russia's military footprint on the territory of its smaller but strategically vital Western neighbor. And that has gotten the attention of Latvia, Lithuania and Poland, all of which border Belarus. So it's not exactly all quiet on NATO's eastern front. And today, we'll take a closer look at what that means. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the great Commonwealth of Virginia, where he's hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Koji and Finn the Collie, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, senior research scientist at the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. It's good to see you and big hello to Ivan and Finn. Thanks. Uh, great to be back on your program. Good to have you. So it's just the two of us today, Michael. So I, I figured we'd pretend we're in some D.C. bar talking about Russian military stuff as one does. Um, yeah, those were the days. <laughs> yeah, those were the days. I uh, hope we can do it again soon. I, wa I want to take the Kaliningrad and the Belarus pieces separately and then look at them together at, in terms of what Russia is trying to do on NATO's eastern front. Then below the fold, we can look at what NATO can do in response. And the reason we're having this show today is because you, you posted an excellent and fairly detailed piece on your Russian military analyst bl analysis blog this week about how Russia is modernizing and expanding um, its force structure in Kaliningrad. Why are they doing this? What does it mean? And how worried should we be? All right. Well, that's a great question. So I just wanted to start that conversation about what's happening in Kaliningrad and some of the other Russian force in Western military district, especially as you know, later on this year, there'll be the Zappa 2021 Zappa, exercises. Yeah. You know, folks are going to turn their attention to this area in some months in due time. And if they do, and they haven't been tracking it, and hey, let's be honest, number of people following military developments in Russia relative to other things is not that necessarily that great. Uh, they might be surprised to find that 18th Guards Motor Rifle Division has been stood up in Kaliningrad, in the Army Corps that's there. And, and let me briefly talk a bit about what happened. So, now the plan to establish this division, based off of the units that are already there, there was a regiment and a brigade there as part of the, the 11th uh, Army Corps that's in Kaliningrad, It'd been telegraphed at least two years in advance. They first said they were standing up an independent tank regiment, then looked pretty clearly this division was going in, and it was formally announced later last year. So after actually what was a lot of neglect, Kaliningrad began to see a lot of modernization, infrastructure investment. This was really post-2016, and steady sort of force structure expansion that you see growing across the Russian military. And Russian military has been converting a lot of their ground force brigades into divisions as the main tactical formation to larger, uh, basically, uh, units. And, and so there's a lot more metal. There's a much larger force structure there that you see both over time in Western Military District and Southern Military District, okay? And the reason they're doing that big picture is they're building the force out much more around regional and large-scale war. And they're reorganizing this force structure with a heavier footprint, but partial mobilization. I'll talk about that it's sort of it reduces the overall readiness of the force to some extent, but it creates a larger force structure as well, right? Um, what does that mean? Like, why would they want to do that in Kaliningrad? And just, I want to back up just for uh, most of our listeners are going to know this, but Kaliningrad is effectively an exclave. It's physically separated from the rest of Russia and kind of wedged in between Lithuania and Poland, which makes it very strategically important. And it's been a place where for some time there's been a military buildup going on there. Back to you, Michael. I just wanted sure. to kind of interject for our listeners on that count. Yeah, so so Russians have basically been switching to divisions and areas where they want 
a larger force structure to hold down a whole front. And what's happening in Kaliningrad is Kaliningrad was always intended to be a self-sufficient grouping of combat forces, right? And it's supposed to be able to undertake both offensive and defensive operations. But the truth is that totally wasn't that, and it hasn't been that throughout these years. It was really an, you know, an enclave that at best had a grouping of forces, okay, that could conduct defensive operations, but even then barely. There wasn't a lot in terms of maneuver formations. There was one battalion of tanks, which for a rush, you know, for for a Baltic military, that may be a lot, right? But by Russian military standards, That's the amount of armor and artillery and the heavy metal that you would see in the Russian ground force formation was very thin. It was very, very slim and clean, right? So, and, and from the Russian military perspective, this one was a, a vulnerability. And, and the truth is that they actually do want to have the capacity in there, as they argue, to be able to defend Kaliningrad from all different sides, from the coast, from the Baltic side, from the side of Poland and where they expect sort of NATO to come, and to be able to conduct offensive operations. So this is a difference now in what forces in Kaliningrad can do. It's, you know, it's a, it's a real qualitative difference in terms of the capability. I don't want to like in any way or shape or form scare people, but I just want to draw my attention that this is an important difference in change that's happening. So this has both an offensive and a defensive capability, basically. Yeah, that's, that's what Absolutely, yeah. Do you think it's primary, primarily defensive or primarily offensive? Because Kaliningrad's really important in, as I don't have to explain to you, in in Russian military thinking. I mean, in terms, of, especially when you're talking about the the Savalki Corridor and the ability to cut the Baltic states off from the rest of Europe and the rest of NATO. So, is this? Do you see this as an offensive move or a defensive move? So Kaliningrad's role is primarily defensive, right? But you can think of it more in the defensive sense that you might think of an anvil or a pinning combat grouping of forces, right? Mm-hmm. In, tr- in, in the operational sense, there's not a tremendous difference because Russian operational constructs are both defensive and offensive in nature. And a lot of the same forces, right, they can perform the kind of missions and operations that are either on the defense mm-hmm. or on offense, offensive maneuver and defensive maneuver. So in this respect, look, that can be an eye of the beholder, but Kaliningrad really has a pinning effect and it has an interdiction effect, right? Because the forces there can then interdict the ground line of communication Mm -hmm. that runs between Poland and Lithuania. And the question is, how well can they do that? Before, I would say to some extent, assuming a sizable Russian force deployed across them in Belarus, which we're going to talk about later in the show, right? We get to the other piece of this puzzle. But right now we're focusing on this piece. Now they're able to do that much more effectively because they're going to have way more artillery and a lot more armor. Let me just draw a picture because I know do people, well, I know to work some people like talk about tanks. I always enjoy talking about tanks. All right. <laughs> so you're going from an independent tank battalion of maybe 41 tanks to about 190, right? So that's a difference. Okay. Right. Now you have, now you have tank battalions that not only support motor rifle regiments that are going to be there, you have an entire separate tank regiment that can conduct its own offensive maneuvers. So these are big differences about what's going to happen in the force structure in Kaliningrad. It's not just about having a couple thousand more men in these units, and, and, and that's on top of all the qualitative improvements that have been happening. And I would add, too, that this is not, this has been a part of a long-time militarization of Kaliningrad. I mean, we all got excited about the Iskander missiles that were that were deployed there a few years back. Um, is this just a continuation of that, or is this an acceleration of that? Yeah, so Kaliningrad really began to see qualitative improvements a bit after 2013 in terms of air defense, but more of all 2016. And I'll tell you the why, because... The story of Kaliningrad is sort of, in some ways, a quintessential story of Russian armed forces. It's, it's, uh, there's always a, a, some tragic comedy in it. You know, Kaliningrad really was, for a long time, more of a creaky outpost than the dread fort that it was often portrayed. The Baltic fleet is the runt of the four main fleets in the Russian Navy. Historically, it suffered from low readiness, poor attention to infrastructure investment, and day kit. And remember, back in 2016, the entire command staff got fired in, in the Baltic fleet mm-hmm. because of poor readiness, because of poor investment in infrastructure, because of embezzlement and all these other issues. As an anecdote, as I, as I kind of wrote up in my blog, kind of an exemplary anecdote, you know, it was a great 2013 story in Kalingrad of a drunk soldier who late at night stole a BMP2 to go off to buy cigarettes, and he ran this thing off the road into a ditch. He got stuck there, and then he went to get a second BMP, this infantry fighting vehicle. To, to try to tow it out. And while he went to get a second one, the first one caught on fire because he didn't turn off the power block, right? And that's the kind of stuff that used to happen in the Russian right. military. Now it happens a lot less. But just to kind of kind of paint a picture of it. So you see a real qualitative improvement in the force. 
you see an improvement in the capabilities that they have, and now you see an expansion of the force, right, of the actual structure that's mm -hmm. there, the size. And as part of the overall wave of modernization that's been hitting the Russian military, uh, both in southern and western military districts, and what you see is, ha is happening to the force is that the size of the formation is expanding, but the overall size of the Russian military is not, right? And that means that they're recombining these units, and to some extent, they're taking a hit on readiness. So that let's say they're going down from, you know, closer to 90, 100% readiness in terms of staffing in the unit, more to 70, 75%. And the reason why, I'm just giving notional numbers. Mm. The reason why it's happening is because, one, they don't think that the force structure they had is sufficient enough to stand up in a real kind of large-scale fight with NATO and the United States. And, and the second reason is that, they do believe that, okay, in the event of a conflict, there'll be a crisis that builds up to it so that they will have time to mobilize, to gather reserves, to help fill some of these formations, right? They expect to be able to have warning time to fill them out right. so that they have a lot more manpower and a lot more metal to put into the field than they did before, right? So because they're, they're always working with both, you know, quality, capability, and technology, right, and also mass, right? And then mass mm -hmm. tends to be actually more of a weakness on NATO side where you have you have really good capability and technology, but if you ask people what can they put in the field in the first 30 days or 60 days of a fight, the answer is not a lot, and that could get chewed through pretty fast. All right, gotcha. Now, this is happening, if I, if I hear you correctly, this began around 2013, accelerated in 2016, which happens to coincide with a broader context of a deterioration uh, in relations between Russia and the West. So I think that, of course, cannot be divorced from the context. How worried should Lithuanians and the Poles be right now? Well, I mean, look, the the move was telegraphed for some years ago, and it was clear that uh, the steady investment and spending on both military modernization and reconfiguring back to a force structure with these larger formations that was going to take place and was eventually make its way both to Kaliningrad, you know, and Russian units increasingly closer to the Baltic. Uh, how worried should they be about it? I mean, it's hard for me to speak for those governments. I think that NATO's done a lot on its end, and the United States has also done a lot on its end to shore up the credibility of both deterrence commitments and actual warfighting ability in Syria. But what it, what it should signal to folks is that it's never going to be a job that fundamentally is done. Yes, I think there's a culminating point to deterrence investments, but that you're still looking at a moving target in terms of Russian military capability. Right. Sure. It's, it's going to be a persistent problem set. Right. And if you look at the balance of power in this region, it's something that countries in it will have to consistently react to. Mm -hmm. right? And Russia has more capability and more capacity in terms of the funding and resourcing available to expand force structure there. That's just the reality. Right. Let's shift to Belarus. I mean, I'm not going to leave Kaliningrad uh, on the table, but let's let's shift to Belarus for a moment. Because something, this is something I've been writing a weekly column on for the Atlantic Council, and something that comes up regularly on this program, and something we've all been watching for years has been Russia's attempts to get Lukashenko, the Belarusian leader, to allow a new Russian airbase on Belarusian territory. The, the base would be located in eastern Belarus and would station Su-27 fighter jets manned by Russian pilots. Now, Lukashenko had been resisting this, but he recently, as he's been isolated by the West and is kind of on the ropes due to the political crisis there and kind of really has no place to run but to Moscow, he recently indicated he might acquiesce. Russia and Belarus also held two joint military exercises this month. Um, it's not unusual for Russia and Belarus to have military exercises, but they do have a record number planned for this year, culminating, of course, in the massive Zapid 2021 exercises scheduled for September. Um, Russia and Belarus have also set up three joint and permanent military training centers, in one in Russia, in, uh, two in Russia, one in Nizhny Novgorod, and one in Kaliningrad, and um, also one in Belarus's Grodno region. Michael, if anything, is, is really... Is anything really changing with Russia's military presence in Belarus, or is this just a lot of noise? I mean, we always hear all this talk about the, you know, the ultimate integration of Russian and Belarusian armed forces. We hear a lot about Putin's desire to turn Belarus into a de facto extension of Russia's Western military district. And when you combine this with the Kaliningrad piece, it does begin to look pretty frightening. How worried should our Pol again, our Polish, Latvian, and Lithuanian friends be? Or how, how worried should we be? 
I think Russian military does see Belarus as an essential extension of Western military district. And it's part of an extended defense strategy where Russia's real borders are kind of at the outer edges of Belarus borders. And they've always tried to work on military integration with Belarus to, in order to establish what they call kind of regional uh, grouping of forces between them and Belarusian forces, the bulk of which is obviously the military power of the Russian military and its ability to deploy to Belarus in the event of a crisis. So what we're seeing in the last year is not a difference in degree, right? We're actually seeing a real quality of difference in terms of the military presence of Russian forces in Belarus, even though it's very minor for uh, two reasons. The first is that Lukashenko's two-level game, you know, between Russia and the West is clearly over, right? Yep. That ship has sailed. Okay, yep. he has no options. He's very obviously desperate to a large extent. And even though Russians are trying to manage this transition in Belarus, it's very clear that Lukashenko no longer can play a lot of the games that he was famous for. Exactly. And nobody's an expert on this, I think, in many ways better than you. So I won't get into that subject. I'm sure many listeners can follow the politics of Belarus very well. Now, the second part is that what Russia has been doing for the past year is they, through these exercises, have been trying to maintain a permanent military presence de facto in Belarus and what they're really trying to establish. And by the way, the way I think they look at it is sort of a, hey, this is what NATO has been doing. We're going to try to do this thing back to NATO. That is, they're going to maintain a temporary presence in Belarus through rotating exercises, mm -hmm. but de facto it will be permanent, right? Ah, constant uh -huh. presence of Russian forces in endless exercise, and there'll be two-sided exercises, whatever, but that is the idea. So now you're actually seeing the maintenance of a, of a near-permanent combat presence. That's what they're going to go to. And these training centers, obviously the one in Grodno, which is very, very far uh, towards the western border of Belarus, is essential for them. Why do they want the forces there? Okay, even a small amount of forces, okay, can create the ability for that military if they want to, to ramp up presence. Right. That is, that is that small footprint can be expanded potentially on relatively short notice. And you don't know what they're really going to build in Grodno because they're saying that, OK, if they're going to train air crews for Su-30 SMs, that they're going to be practicing training with air defense systems and sort of on other combat training tasks. They've left it a bit ambiguous. Because there's a question of how many troops will be there. What kind of base will they have there? What will be the upload capacity of military presence should Russian forces want to quickly increase that presence right in that area? And they're setting it up to some extent as, for their point of view, I'm sure, a tripwire force, right, on, on Belarus's western border. Because most of Zappa's exercise is essentially planning around a sort of Polish-Lithuanian uh, incursion that's leading NATO forces into Belarus and, and a Russian counterintervention. Right. So let's, I mean, this, I mean, when you put these two pieces of the puzzle together, the Belarus piece and the Kaliningrad piece, this looks to me like you just said it's not a difference of degree it's a difference of kind it's a qualitative change on nato's eastern front how much does this change the military balance and also i mean this this air base i'm somewhat obsessed with this air base in eastern belarus i've been following this for a while how much would that change the military balance so the air base is kind of an interesting topic in one respect it's a bit of a canard because there's russian air base in kaliningrad there's russian air bases you know right east of the baltics there's a russian air base all around so what does the air base in belarus do from a military perspective for the russian forces at first not much right in terms of what it adds but it was first an important uh, game to be playing with lukashenko where lukashenko would say you know give me this and russian would say well then give me this air base and he said i don't want to because the air base then means that okay belarus does not have great options to play this game between Russia and the West, right. it then confirms that Belarus is solidly, essentially an extension of the Western military district. The other thing that would have allowed Russian force to do if they needed to, was to rapidly introduce airborne forces and other forces in the event of a crisis. Because if you have, a, if you have an air base, if you have a base of any kind, Brian, it means that you have some kind of force presence agreement, right? You have some, some capacity of, of troops you can have and if you have an air base, it means you can very quickly bring in airborne forces, then unload, and they can they can quickly seize ground and then wait to be reinforced by ground troops, right? So, and I know, at least I suspect, that that's why Lukashenko never wanted this air base, okay? Because as soon as Russian forces seize an airport or an air base, they can bring a lot more troops in. And once they bring those troops in, they can simply hold ground until they're reinforced, right? And then it can be over very fast for... A, fear, a country with a fairly weak military like Belarus. So would it prevents, if I hear you correctly, it prevents 
Lukashenko from doing the old Lukashenko two-step, playing with the West, um, because it forecloses on that. Now, that's foreclosed now. So it also so maybe the, the Russia doesn't even need that chip anymore. But it also augments Russia's military power vis-a-vis Belarus, not necessarily the West. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, it allows it allows a rapid crisis intervention, right? It allows them to know that they have, you know, outside of the current political efforts to manage this crisis transition, that the Russian military has a solid plan B, right? And it gives them options. But but in the current circumstance, from my point of view, it seems that they don't want an airbase publicly announced because of the attention it will draw in the current context. What they would like to do is to have this sort of training center, and you don't know what this training center is going to be, but to attain a military presence via another name that is likely to be in Belarus for the foreseeable future. Because if they announce announce an air base now, I I suspect it'll have sort of negative negative visibility, negative reactions from the Belarusian public, right? Right. Yeah, and I mean, in, in this training center, unlike the air base, which would be in eastern Belarus near the Russian border, the training center is in western Belarus near the NATO border, near, I think I believe it's near the Polish border, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. But um, so that is something that has gotten far less attention, but is actually a lot more disturbing than this air base, which I've been fixated on since at least 2015 um, and actually was, you know, kind of weird to be cheering on Lukashenko, but cheering on Lukashenko's resistance to allowing the Russians to have this. Now, here's a million-dollar question, Michael. We're talking about a lot of stuff here. We're talking about a massive force modernization in Kaliningrad and expansion. We're talking about a possibly a new air base in eastern Belarus and a training center in western Belarus. We're talking about these rotational forces to keep kind of a de facto permanent troop presence in Belarus. Can the Russians afford all this stuff? I mean, we're, we're in an environment where the Russian economy is like, you know, not exactly doing well we're in an environment of low, low oil prices and an economy that's deeply dependent upon upon hydrocarbons. Can they afford this? So the, the short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, I think I think it's a great question. I think it's one that, that people ask quite a bit. And let me give some pe- people some hard facts that uh, I hope they'll make use when they when they look at the situation in context. And as always, I don't want to overplay kind of the, the offensive nature of the current developments, but but people should understand the differences between incremental change in degree and change in kind that have a meaningful difference mm-hmm. for Russian presence in Belarus or what force in Kalinga would be able to do. So look, if we look over the past year, Russian GDP really contracted by not much more than 3% instead of the 10% GDP contraction anticipated, and basically less than half of a lot of Eurozone uh, GDP contractions, almost 7%. Second, Russian defense spending over the past year under COVID really has not declined. It actually probably rose from 3.8% of GDP to 4%. It's a lot. Third, Russia spends a lot on defense, okay? In real person power parity-based estimates, okay? Because understand that Russia doesn't buy its equipment in dollars from the United States. It buys its equipment in rubles from itself. The effective amount that they spend every year is about $150 billion worth. That's a lot. That's more than many European countries combined. Now, that's not pur- that's by pur- purchasing power parity or... Yeah, so if you if you don't go off of highly erroneous market exchange rates, right? When you read IISS military balance, for example, that's the only place in the world you will find where Britain allegedly spends more on its defense budget than Russia. And obviously, if you compare the British military and the Russian military in size, scope, and capability, you're going to say, this is not possible. How could mm-hmm. there be more of an input going into this military than this infinitely stronger, larger, more powerful military on the right side of the ledger that you claim spends less, right? The outputs don't match the inputs. Yeah. Gotcha. So if you know, if we look at pursing power parity and if we adjust for the tremendously different cost of material inputs, labor inputs, the cost of the force, right. and the fact that this country imports very little in defense articles from abroad, especially because Russia sanctioned um, right. sensibly, you see that, the, that this force can only be explained by a spending power of, by the way, 150 billion is a conservative estimate, to be honest, and it right. used to be more during the height of the modernization program towards 2015. It actually was more. And here's the rub. Unlike Western militaries, Russia spends a much higher percentage of its defense budget on actual procurement and modernization, okay, buying the, the kit as opposed to the cost of the force. Western militaries are pretty expensive in terms of personnel, manpower, and the like. So, 
even though folks have been kind of uh, tracking the stagnating Russian economy and they believe obviously sanctions are, are crimping GDP growth and this, that, and other, the truth is the Russian defense budget has maintained steady. Mm-hmm. The Russian government has been loath to cut the defense budget. They've cut a lot of things, but not defense spending. And when they do cut defense spending, most of those cuts are not realized. And almost none of the cuts are made to the state armament program, which buys a lot of this equipment, the tanks and artillery and, and, and the technology we're talking about. And their defense industry outputs quite a bit. And so the reality is that as a percentage share, Russia spends a lot more of its GDP on defense than European militaries. It gets a lot more bang for that buck. And it is very sustainable. If you look as a percentage of GDP, yes, they keep spending this way. Even if they tapered by a little bit, you know, that budget is largely flatlined. Even if they tapered by a little bit, they've already made the big recapitalization leap in the last decade, right? right. When they had a, a moribund force, they went through a difficult period of military form, reforms, and they were recapitalizing the military. They made those big investments, so now they can sustain modernization. Right. No, I mean, when, when, I, when you put these all these pieces of the puzzle together, it does paint, for me, a very disturbing picture. I mean, you have a qualitative change um, in, in, in Russia's force structure and modernization in Kaliningrad and, and in Belarus, which you're saying is pretty much already an extension of the Western military district. They can afford it, and they can and that, that, that affordability is sustainable. This paints a very disturbing picture, and we're going to talk about what the West can do in the second half. But before we do that, I want to get into something we have to get into. It's a very difficult, if not impossible, question to answer, but I'm I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, we always have to talk. We talk about military. We talk in terms of capabilities and intent. And until now, you've been focusing on capabilities. Um, which seem extremely, you know, uh, robust to, to say the least. What about the intent? Do you have right. any visibility into that? Sure. So, all right. One of the big challenges we always have as analysts is how do we get intent? The capabilities discussion, in many ways, is easier because you can measure it, right? And uh, we often, in some respects, focus on that because one, intent sometimes can be hard to divine, but two, most importantly, intentions can change, right? Whereas capabilities stay. Right. Once right. you build the division in Kaliningrad, you and I can have a brilliant philosophical debate over a beer as to whether it's truly offensive or defensive. But the truth I can't is, wait till we can do that again. Right. But we both know that tanks can move forward and back. So we understand that that intentions can change. And most importantly, if, if two countries are reacting to a crisis, a political crisis, that let's say it's unfolding dollars, this is the worst case scenario. From a Russian perspective, this is their big war fighting scenario, the cause of the war yep. with NATO. Every NATO can get involved. They get sucked in. This for Russia is clearly an area of vital interest. I don't think anybody's going to debate that, right? And and Russian forces are sent in, and the conflict escalates, right? And then and the Russian Russian military is involved, gets involved in a much heavier way. Baltic states concerned for their security, and we're concerned for their security. We reinforce our presence in Europe, and then before you know it, country, both sides that didn't didn't want to have any kind of conflict with rebellers could potentially end up in that conflict. Because of basic spiral decision-making model, kind of people making right. good cho- trying to make reasonable choices, or rational choices, but ultimately dramatically increasing the entire risk and crisis instability. So, in terms of intentions, I don't believe there's any Russian intention to seize the Baltics. And I just want to be clear on that: never have. Right. However, right, you can see two things: this kind of crisis scenario unfolding from Belarus or a political crisis that everyone's uh, reacting to, and the second one. And this is kind of a point I'd like to emphasize. I know lots of folks that look at Russia, they focus on information war, political war, subversion, these uh, these aspects of, of Russian activity or, or uh, Russian operations, all right? But most wars at the end of the day over territory, they over vital interests, they tend to be fought with conventional military forces. And conventional military power does matter for all those other activities because what it does, why the military balance matters, it creates a ceiling for expected retaliation. That is, Russia knows that it can get away with a tremendous amount in terms of this activity that people like to call activity below the threshold of war. They want to call it various kinetic, yeah. Yeah. They brand it however they want. But it can actually be acts of war. It can be state-sponsored insurgency. It can be proxy conflict. It can be all sorts of things, all right, because they understand that NATO will be effectively deterred. Deterrence works, right? And the stronger Russia is, the more conventionally, which is where it counts, the more they understand they can take on risk because they know that whatever NATO or U.S. declaratory policy is, at the end of the day, the U.S. is not going to retaliate against Russia kinetically. Russia is a very strong deterrent. So they can take a lot more risk. This is a stability and stability paradox. 
No, and that's actually a perfect segue for our second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at what NATO can do and should do in response to the emerging realities on the Alliance's Eastern Front. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the great Commonwealth of Virginia, where he is hiding out with his two dogs, Ivan the Kogi and Finn the Collie, is military analyst Michael Coffin, a senior research scientist at the Russian Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a reading and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже за свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. So Russia is clearly upping its military game on its western border. Michael, let's play the foreign affairs geek version of fantasy football. What steps would you suggest the United States and NATO take to respond to this? Does NATO need to put more boots on the ground in the Baltics, for example, or in Poland? Do these boots need to be American boots? Because in the eyes of our allies in Eastern Europe, American boots are worth more than other boots, although I always tell them that any NATO boots on the ground are good. Should the U.S. consider permanent bases in Poland and elsewhere? Let's let's let her rip. What do you think? Sure. I think those are all great questions. Um I'll take it a little bit in piecemeal, but then, but then I think it'd be great if we have a conversation about yeah. also the big picture strategy, sort of the why, right? Oftentimes, in the United States, we tend to do kind of means-based strategy, which is, well, we can do all these things. Let's look at the ones we can afford to do or the things that we can put there. But we, but the big question is, what political ends does that achieve for us at the end mm-hmm. of the day? So when I look at sort of what the things we have done over recent years, I think that uh, deploying sort of uh, NATO battle groups is absolutely the right thing because that presence then ensures that in the event of some kind of aggression, there's a fight and in many ways eliminates the prospect of things like a fait accompli seizure because that's a gambit that the other side won't fight for the territory in question and then you're not going to run into forces of NATO countries or of the United States. But if you do run into them, you're going to have to fight them and that creates political stakes for the other side. Okay. So in terms of overall presence, I, I think that it's always important to both review what you're doing in terms of deterrence investments and the overall operational warfighting plan. I, I've always been I've been against permanent bases in Poland, but that's not a theological position. That is, I'm mm-hmm. I'm probably more than anything to some extent ambivalent about it. it the re- only reason why is that I think that rotating true presence for the United States is really good. You're rotating a lot more forces through Europe and getting them familiar with the the European continent and with the eastern flank. If you just have permanent base forces for the United States there, Brian, then you just have a couple units that are assigned to that mission. But then a lot of the military may not be familiar with it or they may be focused on China. Right. So mm-hmm. so to me, that's not a great outcome. I think there definitely should be more European forces. I'm always annoyed that Europeans can speak as much as they like to about defense spending or about hitting their defense spending targets. But it doesn't matter how much they spend. What matters is how many, what combat credible forces they can produce on a relatively short notice to a fight. From my point of view, the emphasis should still be deterrence. And the difference between deterrence and defense, of course, is that you don't need military superiority for deterrence. That's not what mm-hmm. deterrence requires, one. Two, there needs to be focused. You need to identify the things you're trying to deter, your kind of big worst case scenarios. Uh, third, you want to be careful not just to deploy military things because we can, for two reasons. The United States has a lot of other problems in the Pacific theater, right? right. The U.S. actually are a much higher priority, and Europeans know that because we keep telling them that. Right. They're deeply aware, right? Uh, so we're, we're not living in, in, in a life of luxury right now mm-hmm. in, in, terms of, right. in terms of the cost of foreign policy and, and, and grand strategy. That's one. And, and another part of it is that uh, we don't want to get into a force bidding contest, right? Because if you kind of subscribe to some of the things I've described in the first part of our conversation, mm-hmm. you understand that Russia can meet us there. So if we're just going to deploy forces for the sake of deploying forces, they have forces too that they can deploy, and it's cheaper for them. So we have to be you have to be cautious in that area, right? For me, the big picture strategy has to be 
you keep Russia, in terms of the balance of military power, in this Goldilocks zone between being overconfident and potentially emboldened and between being desperate, right? For us, I think uh, it's going to be probably much harder to get them to be desperate, but we also are already in a place where they're not going to be overconfident. At the end of the day, U.S. and NATO are an incredibly powerful uh, military alliance. The the big challenge is that um, we really have to understand Russian military perceptions. That's the first one, which is, look, two militaries look at the exact same military balance or capabilities, Ryan, and they come up with different conclusions. Right. right? Analysts like the mirror image all the time, but what they don't, what they often fail to appreciate is that what matters is not the forces we place there, it's the Russian perception of the military balance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which if you, th- and if you think that they're kind of looking at it and adding up the same way, they're not. That's just, that's just the reality. And the second part of it that's important at the end of the day is what does the political leadership think? Because decisions on war are made by political leaders. They're not made by military analysts or intelligence folks. And political leaders, believe it or not, often don't know and don't care about a lot of this military capability stuff. It's a much lower percentage of what shapes their calculus than many of us would like to think in the, in the defense analysis of the military world. A lot of times we end up being hammers and we think that the, the most fascinating thing to talk about in the world is nails. But the class of people who makes decisions on war, Brian, they, they come from a, a completely different background. Communicating resolve and interest at stakes is much more important than military capability. Right. Well, what, I, what I'm hearing you say is that we should basically continue doing what we're doing then? Is that, is, is that a fair assessment? To some extent, yes. But here's the challenge, I think. First, I, I'm deeply worried by at least some of the writing I see out there that suggests NATO should begin also focusing on China. Please NATO folks are dealing with the European AOR. Yeah. Don't fall in love in China. You're not done with Russia. You're in no way of resolved this problem, okay? I know the U.S. is saying that NATO needs to talk about China right now because we really want to talk about China. That's a strong, uh, that's what's driving a lot of our strategy and especially defense strategy. I think the best thing NATO can do for us in the Pacific is to actually be able to contribute and handle the Russia problem set much more in Europe, okay? Mm-hmm. That's my personal preference, all right? Second, this conversation about NATO potentially wanting to redefine itself around a mission that focuses on Asia-Pacific and the China problem set, to me, is pretty absurd, especially when they have a tremendous in-area problem that is hardly resolved, right? Because I've seen some people writing to this effect, and I just fundamentally disagree. I see analysts writing about it. I don't see anybody inside of NATO talking about it, actually. But but maybe I'm not looking in the right places. But I, I, I would agree with you there, Michael. I mean, this is our mutual friend, General Ben Hodges, the former commander of U.S. Army Europe, has made, always long made the argument that to the best way to make sure that we can deal with China is to make sure the, Europe, the European security uh, issue is solved um, or is at least managed. Right. So, I mean, if if Europe's worried about an American pivot to China, the thing to do to to mitigate against that is to make sure the European security balance is safe and secure. So that's something there. I I don't I would agree with you that it would be a mistake for NATO to pivot to China. Fortunately, I see analysts talking about this. I don't I don't see a lot of NATO people talking about it on some of the other issues. And I want to like return like on the bases. I know you're opposed to bases. Um, I've 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 always been in favor of them. Um, not just in Poland. I wouldn't mind seeing some bases in the Baltic states, too. Um, not because I think they would change the military balance as much. I agree with you that the rotational forces are actually doing that job. I would like to see more robust rotational forces. But the political message that having bases there sends, I mean, it basically the, the, the security of these countries is already tied to the United States by NATO. But having bases there really put some skin in the game and sends a very clear message to Moscow. So I would argue in favor of bases, but I'm my position on that, like yours against it, is not theological either. I can be persuaded either way, but I tend to fall on the pro-bases side of that debate. I would like to see the rotational forces be much more robust than they are, to be honest. I would like to see something like that. What are your thoughts on all of that? So first, I would love to see more Europeans in those rotational forces that are going to get robust. Sometimes in the in a debate discussions, if I do get into them with European analysts, it's whenever there's a conversation of, well, we should, okay, we have a division, you know, headquarters. Well, maybe we should make it a division, this, that, and other. I always say sort of as an American, oh, yeah, how many divisions are you going to send? Do you have any divisions to send? Because whenever I hear divisions, I immediately assume there's going to be our divisions, right? Well, right. the U.S. has a lot of force structure pulls and a lot of requirements. 
outside of the SAOR. So the first conversation is how much are Europeans going to contribute to it? So yeah, I'd agree. I'd love to see the much larger, wealthier European countries, Brian, who can in fact afford it, actually afford more forest structure to this. Uh, so one. who are we talking about here? We're talking about the Brits, we're talking about the French, we're, we're talking yeah, about the we're Germans. About Germany. Of yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We're talking about the actual readiness and the capability of these forces. We're talking about the fact that Britain is phenomenally hitting that 2% defense spending target, more than 2%, and at the same time, it's very clearly going to shrink and restructure its ground forces such that it's not clear how much capability they'll necessarily have to deploy, right? So, with, you know, and for people like me, the topic of how much a country's spending on defense is rather disinteresting and irrelevant because I'm not in the I'm not interested in the political conversation. I'm interested in what can I actually contribute. They actually do. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Because you can have a country tell you a great story, Brian, about how they're spending more on defense, right? And then uh, when the actual crisis comes, they'll say, "Well, we're very sorry. Uh, we'd love to send you something, but it actually takes us 60 days to force generate something meaningful." Right. Meaningful, you know. No. On this question of like whose boots are on the ground, I mean, the, the argument I get from my Eastern European friends, from my friends in the Baltics and yeah. Poland particularly, is that when there are American boots on the ground, that it's not to suggest that Americans are, are any more valuable than others, but it does up the ante. It raises the specter of a conflict with the United States. And that's something that the Russians are going to think twice about doing rather than a conflict with a smaller European nation, right? And I, I get it that, yeah, Article 5 of the NATO Treaty basically binds us all together, but the fact of American engaging American troops is a bigger deterrent than right. engaging other troops. This, this is the argument. I'm not sure I buy this, but this is the argument my European friends make to me. So I, I think it's a fair argument. I would say that from a Russian perspective, all that matters is the extent to which the United States can attain a coalition of states in NATO that would allow it to project its military power in the European continent. And for Russia, this has nothing to do with NATO passing, sort of agreeing on Article 5 declaration. All it has to do is that if sort of Germany, Poland, and one or two other states are on board, then U.S. military power can be projected. And Russian military principally bases a lot of its planning military strategy off the expectation that its fight, its principal opponent, is the U.S. military, right? It's not, nobody in Russian military is staying up worried that Portugal and Spain are going to show up to the battle, right? That's not, that's, that's not what drives Russian either insecurities or, or military planning considerations. So I do agree with you, but U.S. troops are already, we already have lots of boots on the ground in, in the Baltics and in Poland. When we talk about base of presence, I will tell you where I probably might split, or maybe this is a narcissism of small differences between me and you, is that I would agree probably up to Western Poland. After that, we are going to get to a place, right, in terms of how Russians see our ability to either intervene in Belarus or in Kaliningrad, where it'll draw a greater reaction. And I'm very wary of a force bidding contest, right? There is a culminating kind of point to deterrence beyond which, okay, we are now going to get some negative, negative sum gain from our investment, right? That's one. Another part is, look, as much as defense planners focus on military capability, Brian, that's a smaller part of this equation. We already have forces deployed. Defense planners think that, you know, two brigades deter much better than one brigade, right? And, and the answer is no, they don't, because that's not how political leaders make decisions on war, right? That's the reality of it, right? So there's a certain point at which you're really working on war fighting and defense, right? But you're not really working on deterrence. That's the reality. And, okay. and, and folks need to understand that they understand that what matters for political decision making and what causes war is a bit different than the way defense planners look at it. What about defending the, the keeping the Savalki corridor open? I mean, that is a key strategic goal of, of, of the U.S., because if the Russians manage to close that, that basically cuts our Baltic allies off from NATO. Um, would a base in Poland enhance the Western ability to keep the Savalki corridor open? Or if and if not, what would? Well, we already have quite a number of forces stationed around Poland and pre-positioned equipment and uh, battle groups in the three other Baltic states. We have we still have force structure expansion and changes that are going in. Question of a base. To me, it, it all depends on how the U.S. feels it needs to be postured to react in a crisis scenario. So there's an argument for more presence there up front. And the reason why is not just sort of solving the time distance problem. But also in the event of a crisis, right, right, one of the challenges we actually have in these scenarios, but like kind of if you really want to hear what, what the more rational origin of the Sawalki corridor, Sawalki gap scenario is, it's not Russians 
waking up one morning and saying, you know, I never knew that Lithuania was part of the Soviet Union. How come nobody showed this to me on the map? I feel like invading now. That's not what the cause, that's not the cause of that, thing. or Latvia or Estonia. I never knew that there were Russians in Narva. Now I suddenly discovered this and, and right. uh, should invade. The driver of it was more a crisis that potentially then leads to a substantial shift of U.S. forces from the United States, from continental United States to Europe, right? And then Russian military looks at the situation, the best advice they give is they don't know U.S. intentions, right? So then there may be a decision that the Russian military should preemptively deploy and cut off the ability for NATO to intervene, and that's when they choose to act. By the way, this is a fairly... I'm not saying that a political leader would sign off on this, but what I'm saying is that this is a reasonable way to see how events could unfold in a crisis mm -hmm. when sides, both sides are acting based on limited information and limited knowledge of each other's intentions, right? Gotcha, right, yeah. right. So the point, just to wrap up, the point I was making there is that there is an argument for a stronger presence or the ability to have more prepositioned equipment so that in the event of a crisis, the shift of U.S. forces to the Baltic region isn't so large to draw this kind of conclusion and reaction from the other side. Right, right. Um, I wanted to hit one more thing here before we finish. I'm getting the five-minute warning from the gods of, of podcast land. Um, and that's something that is also an obsession of our, our mutual friend, General Ben Hodges. It was an obsession of his when he was the commander of U.S. Army Europe. And it's been a, it's been a obsession of, of General Hodges ever since. And that's the issue of military mobility. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, uh, Ben is fond of looking at a map of I-95 and how fast you can get down I-95 from Maine to Florida and comparing a comparable distance of moving military equipment uh, across Europe in the event of a crisis if we had to move it from, say, Germany to Estonia. Or, or, or Germany to Lithuania. Um, and this move for a kind of a military Schengen. And that and Ben has argued that this, you know, this should count against a country's um, 5%. You know, if the Germans are willing to build the dual-use infrastructure that will have civilian benefits as well and, and, and work with us on things like military mobility across the European continent, that in peacetime has to go through a lot of, you know, a maze of regulations to move military hardware across the continent to create the, the, the situation where we can move this much faster in the, in the event of a crisis. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think this is a key under-discussed component of it. I'm eternally grateful to General Hodges for, for raising this issue. It's not something I ever even thought about until I heard him talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think operational ability is one of the central challenges in the European theater for our forces. The problem we have is not, from my point of view, getting into theater. It's one, actually inter-theater mobility, right? Getting to wherever the fight is with our forces with a reasonable amount of mass, right? Not a tiny amount of force that just gets there and becomes a speed bump with a reasonable amount of mass. Because part of, you know, U.S. defense strategy is to blunt a potential, you know, opponent's advance. And, and surge to retake lost territory. The other part of it is survival in theater. It's not getting into so much of the problem, it's survival, because you're dealing with an opponent that's going to be attritioning your forces, that's going to be contesting your logistics, your command and control, and your ability to get there. And the Russian strategy, military strategy, is principally based around attrition. But this is a good final point in our discussion what NATO yeah. should do, and I'm gonna make an incredibly banal point. Get more stuff, because great power wars the country's going to them usually have this allure that they're going to inflict shock and awe, cognitive paralysis. A lot of U.S. doctrinal writings suggest that we're going to do jujitsu in all domain operations and somehow Russians will be, you know, placed into all these dilemmas because of how great simultaneous our operations are. Everyone's going to die to attrition. Here's what's really going to happen. OK. And. And a lot of the best forces in the initial period of war will be attritioned in the fight. OK. And then the countries that had greater resilience, greater mass, greater density, and a better ability to replace all those things that they lost in the initial period of war, they'll be the best set up for it. And I'm not saying the Russians are necessarily the best set up. They're not for a long war, nor would they like a long war with NATO. What I'm saying is that NATO's definitely not set up for it either. And there are a lot of intellectual alibis being offered by defense establishments today to intellectually compensate for material disadvantage, right, instead of making the big, hard investments in boring things like mobility in the theater, right? In getting forces that are expendable, in getting for such as, you know, uh, autonomous or remotely operated systems and the like, if that makes sense, right? So we no, need to make the right sense. investments. No, I mean, my, my big takeaway 
right now is, I mean, as we discussed in the first half, the, the Russians are indeed enhancing their capabilities in a very qualitative way on the border with NATO, on NATO's eastern front. But NATO appears more or less ready to meet the challenge, although we need to do, we need to make some tweaks. we got to make those rotational forces a little bit more robust. we got to have more European boots on the ground, um, as well as more American boots on the ground. Um, and we got to invest in things like military mobility. What it sounds like to me is we basically, the Iron Curtain is basically moved to the Belarusian Polish-Lithuanian border, if I'm not mistaken, it's, and then we're we're in for this kind of protracted period of a military standoff. There is that. Would that be? I mean, to, to wrap it up, would that be? Am I accurate in that assessment? I would say that to some extent, in Russian military planning, the way they looked at this region, Brian, it was always a veil that was there, right, between across Kaliningrad and Belarus, at least from the Russian perspective. Right. It's just that now you're seeing somebody taking a big bright highlighter and highlight it for you. And for a lot of people, that's going to come in with some sharp relief, probably especially after the ECZAPA 2021, a lot of which is going to take place more in Belarus compared to the previous one in 2017. Right. And make sure you reserve some time in September because we're going to have you back on the show uh, to talk about uh, Zappa 2021, because that is something that's I think this something tells me this year is going to get even more kind of freak outs in our little world here in D.C. than previous Zappa exercises. And every every time there's a Zappa exercise, the entire kind of defense community in, in, in the U.S. and Europe kind of sits up and takes notice. I think we're going to be doing that again come September. Um, and that's all we have time for today. Unfortunately, I could continue talking about this stuff with you all day, Michael, but I think my producers would have issues with that, so we'll continue this in a bar in D.C. once we can do that. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name's Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the great Commonwealth of Virginia, where he is hiding out with his awesome dogs, Ivan the Kogi and Finn the Kali has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, senior research scientist at the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. It's always a pleasure, Michael. Thanks for a fun and enlightening discussion. Absolutely. Great being uh, on your show again and uh, to be continued. Yeah, to be continued. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Leakes is in the virtual control room and he keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, making me and my guests sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.